Well, welcome to Gospel Conversations in 2017. Now, this year we are going to focus on a twin theme, which is how hope lays the foundation for action in the world. By action, we mean a particular kind of action. We're not talking about reactions or transactions or just moving through life uh, on, on autopilot. Uh, we're not talking about the kind of action that's just an instinctive response to circumstances. We're talking about transformative action. Now, the word we're using for this is design. It's not a word that's used very much in the Bible, although tonight's talk does um, use one of the, one of the references uh, in Hebrews uh, to design. But design is the kind of action that challenges the present situation. Um, it doesn't stop there. It design imagines a better alternative future. And then design begins to shape ways and means to change things. So it's a specific kind of action. Now, this might sound more like a political agenda, a left-wing reform agenda. Um, and it will sound like that kind of agenda rather than the agenda that's been traditionally associated with the church. Uh, and that's true, but it's also sad because really the church, the believers in Jesus should be the agent for reform in the world. And, and that should be the brand of Jesus, the brand of, of change. And, that should, and Jesus's life should provide us um, the shape and instruction and guidance as to how that reform agenda can work. Uh, but all too often, the church has retreated into conservatism and protecting the status quo. Uh, of course, wonderful exceptions to this throughout the history of the church, but we're talking probably now about that's, that's the brand of the church too often today. Now, the theology of hope changes and challenges that kind of conservatism. This theology has not been well developed by the church over the centuries. In fact, hope, or what's called eschatology, is in many ways the poor cousin of Christian theology. In the talk, we explore some of the reasons for why this, this has happened and some of the sad consequences of this inadequacy of having a theology of hope. But, but our job in, in this talk is positive. It's actually not just a critique. Um, our main job is to flesh out the positives. What does hope mean? And that's what we mean by saying a theology of hope rather than just hope. We're actually using that title unashamedly, borrowing from the great book by uh, Jürgen Moltmann, and we use, I'm using that book quite a lot in this talk. The theology of hope means, well, we, it means we study it. We can put it into the framework of God, God's nature and God's plans. And a theology of hope means developing a, a deep conceptual grasp of the meaning that lies behind, behind that word. And some words in the English language really require this kind of work. Uh, hope is one of those words because its meaning in the scripture is way bigger than our common usage today when often we reduce the word to a, a synonym for like wishing or dreaming, 
Sometimes it's just uh, an alternative word for faith in our minds. However, the gospel really positions hope as, quite specifically, it is the doorway to a new way of looking at the world, at creation. It's code for looking at creation not just as a phenomenon or as you know, scientific facts, uh, not just as the backdrop for life, but rather looking at creation as creation illuminated with its final and full meaning. Hope unveils creation as God's great work with God's great end in mind. And this way, it doesn't confine the territory of hope to the future, but actually it positions it to the present as defined by the future. That's a really critical theme to get into your mind, because more often than not in Christian eschatology, hopes become um, a predictive exercise to speculate about uh, the second coming of Christ. Uh, hope in the scripture is much more targeted to the present as defined by the future. Now, this talk does not and it cannot exhaust that kind of topic. No, no speaker in the world can do that, and I certainly, I certainly can't. Uh, we're just wading on the shores here of a great ocean because our mind is limited, you know, our ability to grasp this. Uh, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, ad, uh, acknowledges that when he says, famously, we see through a glass darkly. Uh, but Paul does say we see um, so in this talk, we can have an authentic aim to get glimpses of the territory of hope that can grow in our hearts and minds. So hope thus defined actually opens the door to optimism. It also opens the door to critiquing the present and to reform. Uh, in a sense, hope is offering a measure by which we can assess and toward which we can build Hence our opening title, that hope is the foundation for design and for action in the world. Throughout the talk, I use sketches to illustrate some of the more abstract ideas, because sketches can say more than words can often, and we'll post these on the Gospel Conversation website. So if you're listening to this uh, on uh, the podcasts, um, you can go to the, uh, to the website to look at the slides and the sketches or to download them. Meanwhile... Sit back and uh, enjoy the message of hope with us all. Hope and design, um, how the theology of hope uh, lays the foundation for action in the world. So the, the, the theme we're talking about is the connection between um, how we might act in the world, how we might act as reformers or participants or transformers, how we might act individually, how we might act in social situations. You know, we're not talking here about our redemption individually. We're talking about how we participate in the world. And, and what we're saying is that the theology of hope becomes more and more important the more I want to act in the world. Uh, by the way, I, when I was looking for an icon for what hope could look like, I thought the magnificent... Uh, Dome of uh, San, San uh, Carlino, which Borromini, if you ever go to Rome, that's the one place you want to go to in my view. Hardly anybody goes there. It's just a very t a small little 
church um, uh, that is not commonly visited, but in the, in the eyes of many people is the most sublime piece of architecture on, on the earth. Um, certainly Frank Geary thought so. That's what Frank Geary said, the greatest living architect, that he's only catching up to Borromini. Uh, but that's, that's kind of looking straight up into the dome. Uh, and, and I love that picture of transcendent hope, um, or, you know, something that's above us all. Uh, and, of course, we would feel that the whole earth is a cathedral. Um, so it's a really, really great metaphor for what we're talking about tonight. Um, so it, the, the argument that tonight that I'll be making is just a broad argument. I'm not going to go into uh, detail. I just want to get the, the, the main coordinates. The th first thing to say is that hope is a worldview. I think that's actually really important. It's actually more than faith, more than love. It's a worldview. It's like a paradigm. It's not something that you can package. It's more something that's a lens through which, you, through which you look at everything. So a better way to view hope, rather than viewing hope as, you know, if one tried to arrange, you know, Christian doctrine into, well, I don't know, six modules and hope was module number five. It's more, no, no, hope is better thought of as the lens through which I look at all the other ones. Um, and uh, worldviews are very, very important, um, and I like what, Tom Wright says about them, which is that they're like the foundation of a house, um, uh, that it's invisible. Uh, foundations are invisible. You don't see them. Um, in fact, in building, you'd obviously be aware in any large building, they're actually half the work and, uh, and everything rests on top of them, but nobody, nobody um, can see them explicitly. They are there's something through which, not at which, uh, an individual or a society looks. And uh, they form the grid. I love this statement. Worldviews form the grid according, according to which we humans uh, organise reality, not bits of reality. And that's a very, very good phrase for what hope does. It, so hope is... The, the, the particularly Christian worldview, one might almost now start to call it a, is an epistemology, a way of knowing, which organises reality. So if we took it out of the world of theology, then we would say this is the particular aspect of the gospel message which gives us an alternative way of interpreting, all, well, not almost, every bit, everything about reality. So clearly you can't do too much work on that side of the spectrum. You'll never say, I've now got hope kind of settled, you have to keep drawing into it. And um, one of, the, one of the, the, the reasons why I was so compelled to move into hope was because of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, which I think is an incredibly important passage in the New Testament because it's important for many reasons, but one of them is that you absolutely seem to have here what you probably don't have anywhere else, which is his pastoral aspiration for everybody. People he's never seen, and he says, I'm going to pray for you that. So really interesting to say, what is he going to pray that? What is his concern for people? And his concern, like modern prayers, don't just don't 
And modern liturgies almost don't cover what he goes on to cover, which is a critique of modern liturgies and prayers. He doesn't pray for holiness. He doesn't pray for forgiveness. He doesn't pray for sanctification. He doesn't pray for anything like that. He prays that, that with it, paraphrasing it, that, that these people will get a hold of, understand, get a grasp of the whole plan of God that is cosmic in scope and begin before the foundation of the world. And the first of those three great things he prays for is, I want you to know what is the hope of your calling. That is, that is, the, that is the first of the three great things he prays and the other two fit in behind that. So that told me that from where he sat, he thought that this was incredibly, incredibly important. Um, now, the, it's ironic, but that what this does is now sets us up to be, actually be people of action. Um, one of the um, falsehoods of the modern era is that people who act are not people who spend a lot of time thinking. It's actually one of the greatest mistakes to make in all human activity, that people who act well and in a transformative way think a lot about things. And uh, so, so the... But if, 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 you, if you don't get them together, then your actions become uh, desperate and reactive rather than enacting a truth. And when you view it this way, you start to think of all of your actions as a story or a symbol, not just as a transaction, not just as an event, not just as a moment in time, but actually as a narrative. My actions are a narrative. They reveal, it's almost, they're symbolic. They reveal what I think about who I am and about who everybody else is. Uh, the, the sphere of action, I won't go into this, but I, I really like the trilogy that we heard most recently from Ian Proven, that, that I, could, I could parse action into three areas. Um, I, I'd actually probably add a fourth. Uh, there's definitely in my attitude to God, who God is and my relationship with God. That's actually an area of action. Um, my relationship with other people socially and my relationship with the world and by the world, I would mean the earth, I would mean situations, I would mean my job, I'd mean my professions. So it's a pretty powerful set of three areas in which I'm going to be acting. You know, I said I'd add a fourth, and I would actually put my attitude to myself. Because I, and perhaps that diagram captures that, because we, we have our own um, set of actions with ourselves. Like, that, you know, we, we, we are governing ourselves. We're governing our habits. We're governing our mind. We're, you know, that's actually probably where all the action is. <laughs> you know, I've had a bad day today. Um, and knows that. And um, so I'm not in the mood to talk tonight about positivity because I, I've had my fair share of uh, counterpunches from life today. Um, reminds me of when Tom Wright spoke when he was in Australia and he's preached on the resurrection. And he had the, he, I don't know if any of you were there, but he opened up with, for, for an Anglican bishop an astonishing statement. He said, I want you all to pray for me. Because whenever I talk about these things, the resurrection, he said, things fly around the room, quote, unquote. <laughs> um, he thought there was real spiritual warfare whenever you go onto this groundwork, um, which was very interesting for someone like him to say that. 
Right here. So, so that's broadly speaking a, uh, a very important claim. Claim number one: that hope and action, why, you know, wise action, uh, hope informs wise action. Um, unfortunately, if action outweighs hope, uh, we get into trouble, and I think we're seeing a lot of it today. Today, we are in an era, particular era. It was first foreshadowed to me 20 years ago, 15 years ago, in a, in a conversation in London with a very senior consultant to the mining industry. I, I forget how, how, how and why we were talking, but it was a, a chat over a glass of wine. And, and he, he was uh, at least agnostic, but probably an atheist. But he was foreshadowing that the great in, uh, new movement in politics, which he viewed as dangerous, would be the... the uh, move of fundamentalist uh, Christianity into politics. He viewed that as very dangerous. Whether he's right or not, let's just leave that aside, but let's just say there's a lot of action in the world, politically, that, that is attaching the name of Christian to it. Um, I, I will talk about that later, but not tonight. But when you get a guy like Steve Bannon, who is clearly the intellectual force for the moment behind... Trump and people who are trying to diagnose where Bannon is coming from regularly quote his speech to the Vatican where he actually said, you know, we are in a war. He likes to think we're in a war um, where Judeo-Christian values, quote unquote, Judeo-Christian values are in conflict with uh, the enemies of Islam, secularism, etc. So... I mean, this is right at the front of... It's been, it's, it's been moving all the time, but now it's really getting there. So, so we're in the middle of some kind of interesting era. And by the way, all this is fun, right here. Let's just get this out there, right here. This is actually... If you want to be in the public life, just suck it up. It's going to be fun and dangerous and hectic, right? Don't expect it to be a clean ride. <laughs> I mean, you know, Eternity magazine uh, has, has had a few articles on people who... A sort of uh, involved uh, Christians in giving their view of, of Trump and there was this lady in the last one, Sweet Thing, she went to his inauguration and she felt bad about it, but she sort of said, I went to his inauguration. So there's a little piece on it, but what she said was she was kind of in two minds, but in the end she's pro-Trump. And the reason she said is that because all of, let's face it, in, in the kind of era of Obama and prior to that, all, of our Christ, all us Christians had a target on our back. I'm thinking, why is this a bad thing? I mean, who are you believing? He had a target on his back. They really blasted him out of the way, crucified him. What do you want? What's so wrong with having a target on your back? So the fact that, that, that we're in, a, in an era of um, turbulence is not a bad thing. I'm not suggesting that by any means that it's a bad thing because I think now the topic of faith is out there in the world more. But if we're in an era of action, then the theology's got to get really good. If it doesn't, bad things happen. Essentially, if, you're, if action outweighs hope... Um, bad things happen. The saddest example in history, which has always um, made me feel um, yeah, most disappointed and sorry, is um, uh, Munster, which I'll get to in a moment. But um, I, I won't go into the history of... Um, how Christianity started to diminish hope 
in any detail. Maltman does quite a bit out of it. I think it's not that hard to understand. Maltman's essential point is that eschatology has been underdone by the church almost forever. It's always been, and it's been weak and never built up its tradition. Now, high, his high point is what, the, 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 what happened in the first 300 years uh, was, I mean, you know, hope is a critique of the modern world, but the more power Christianity got, the more it was married to the status quo, the less it was going to have any kind of message of hope. Does that make sense? Um, and that's what he says down the bottom. The more Christianity became an organisation for discipleship under the auspices of the Roman state religion, the more eschatology and its mobilising, revolutionising and critical effects on history were left to fanatical sects and revolutionary groups. Bit of a mouthful, but do you get what he's saying? That, that by institutionalising faith, it, it actually lost the reality that hope should be almost a criticism of everything in the world against the New Jerusalem. Because who wants the New Jerusalem if I'm running the Roman Empire? Like, isn't that good enough? And so, as he said, the sad thing is that people who started to talk about action in the world became fringe groups, fanatical groups. Um, this is the saddest example. Anyone been to St Lambert's in Munster? Anyone know the story of Munster? Um, 1530, 1530s, um, uh, what happened you know, in, the, in the turbulence post-Luther was that um, various groups became uh, more, I'm not going to use the word fanatical, um, they became, because they weren't initially, they, they, it's almost like, what Luther did was he, he destroyed the kind of, stabilising, centralising power of the Catholic Church and, and unleashed the power of smaller groups. Now, the, one of these groups became known as the Anabaptists because they rebaptized. So anyone, I, I personally believe in adult baptism rather than infant baptism, so I'd be an Anabaptist, and that was the only thing in the end, or one of the very few things that Luther and the Catholics agree on was that people like me should have been killed. So Luther would have had me executed. Um, now, the Anabaptists, in, in many ways, were very people who, you know, I think a lot of us would have empathy for, but they went too far and they got into the hands of uneducated leaders, particularly a guy called Hoffman, who essentially started to move beyond or, uh, what seemed to be good points to the new Jerusalem on earth. And this then becomes a prediction that Jesus is returning, and he predicted it, um, 1532, and when Jesus didn't return in 1532, he didn't change his mind. He just said he got the date wrong and the city wrong. And um, he, was, he said, I think the 1532 return was going to be, um, I'm not sure which Austrian city, but his point is the, um, he recalibrated to Munster 1534 and they actually set up, they took over the city. It was a, it was a takeover by the far right, Christians. Um, they did some stuff that looks good, like, but a bit pushy, which was the, uh, the common ownership of property. So, so they had to share all their property, but then they moved into polygamy and all sorts of things, and it didn't last very long. Um, and the um, Catholic bishop who was ousted um, besieged the city, and um, they killed 
the leaders and, and, and the Anabaptists were dispersed. Uh, they were then led by a wonderful man called Mano Simons who had to kind of rebuild the heart of the Anabaptists. I won't go into, into that, but Menno Simons was a... Both Mark, Mark Strom and I love Menno Simons. But all I'm saying is you, you get into action in the world and, and, you know, stuff gets very unstable. They, they tortured and executed the three leaders and then they stuck their bodies into these cages and strung them up at, from the bell tower of the cathedral. This is, this is not a great look for Christianity. I mean, don't put this on your sort of uh, fridge door to show people. But, and they left them there for, for their bodies to be pecked by the ravens. Uh, when there was only skeletons left, they removed the skeletons. And they're there to this day. There's a debate. I mean, I think they might be replicas. The real ones might be in the museum. But there's a debate today in the city about taking them down because it's so macabre. But just Google Munster and it's very interesting. So this is not, you know, this is almost like how bad things can go if I say my faith is going to lead to, you know, heaven on earth. Which then, of course, leads to, and throughout history has led to the other one, which is the desert fathers who say, well, totally withdraw. Total withdrawal, nothing to do with it. That's with the, you know, the, the asceticism and monasticism of the de desert fathers. It's almost like two polarities and how do we move between them? So... If we then, having, having made the point that it's important to have a, have a theology of hope, what is hope? Um, now, as Gordon's already mentioned, that, that hope is most famously clustered with faith and love. As Paul said, these are the three and they abide. Um, so what are, what are these, these three? Um, let's look at them. Uh, I think faith is, in a way, easier to understand because faith is the key beliefs of our doctrine. And certainly, I don't know about you, but for a long time in my life, I almost saw hope and faith as synonyms. Like, you know, they kind of, they're just expressing the same thing. So, so that in itself is a problem if we think that because it shows I don't really understand what hope is because it's not the same. Um, love, obviously, is about our affections and relationships. So I think... Faith and love are certainly better explored in Christian theology than hope. So what is hope? I think most simply, in, once people realise hope is about the future, it's how we organise our view of the future. That's certainly there. And faith is not necessarily how I organise my view of the future. Faith's what I believe to be true. It's not, it's not as intrinsically linked to the future. Hope is clearly the future. I think in most people's minds, hope is almost like the second coming of Christ, right? So that's probably where people would put it. And, and if, if, you, if you mention the word eschatology, that's what they'd say. It's about the second coming of Christ. It has popular meanings, of course, which everybody uses around. We've already talked about them. It tends to be connected with optimism. Uh, importantly, it's equally connected with utopianism, which means no place. So it's almost like idealism that's wishful thinking. Uh, so hope can merge into... Uh, you're just being hopeful about that. It's almost like it's where faith runs out at the edges and yeah. just becomes a, a yeah. vague, powerless. Uh, powerless. So that, I think they're co the common meanings. Um, we've already said that it's very important in an age of nihilism, which is, I believe, there's nothing of importance and anxiety. Clearly, 
if hope's about any of these things, it's very important. And by the way, um, Lisa is doing a PhD on hope, so I think it would be a good idea if she talked to us sometime in the year. Don't you think about the psychology of hope? You'd be willing to do that, wouldn't you? Yeah. Good. Okay, so we're going to look forward to Lisa talking about the psychology of hope because I think, broadly speaking, you're going to make... Hope is not that well advanced in psychology, but seems to matter more than most people. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm um, using Maltman as my launching pad. Oh, great. Great. So you're acknowledging that hope can also be for Christians, not just second coming and way into the future. Can it be a bit more immediate? Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. What I'm going to talk about is that actually the New Testament meaning is bigger than... but These are inadequate. These are, these are, these are inadequate meanings, but they're, they're probably what, what we've got to do better than. So let's begin with how hope got sidelined um, um, because Maltman's argument, my argument, I, I, I mean, I didn't need Maltman to tell me this, is that the evangelical Christianity that I was brought up in was very much around individual salvation, redemption. The idea of eschatology and hope was not big in it. I was not trained in it. It didn't build me up. So um, this is my diagram of how hope got sidelined. Um, which is that the, the gospel has focused very, very heavily upon the cross as the redemption uh, for, and the forgiveness of sins. And particularly post-Reformation, that's, that's been very centralised. The cross has been very centralised. We talk about that. We've talked about that a lot. Importantly, in most evangelicalism, the resurrection is less important than the cross. And it's viewed virtually as an escape hatch. If we ask anyone, why did Jesus rise from the dead? It's, well, he had to because he was divine. Like the job was done by dying on the cross. That's the forgiveness of sins. That was the operating mechanism. The, the key operating mechanism of the cross was a moral operating mechanism to forgive sins and pay a punishment. And then once that's done, since he's divine, he had to rise from the dead. Now, that has almost no theology of resurrection in it. It's very weak, and there is, uh, there is a, an inadequate, what some people call soteriology of the resurrection. And a guy who wrote a book on this, which first alerted me to it, made, made the point I've just made by simply counting in famous 20th century theology textbooks the numbers of pages on the cross versus the numbers of pages on the resurrection. It's like 90% to 10%. But my point is that the, the resurrection is not seen to be intrinsic to the work of God. Does that make sense? And if it is intrinsic to the work of God, you'd have to explain how, and this doesn't explain it, and most people, most people can't. I think we've talked a lot about this in Gospel Conversations. Yeah. But then you go to the end, the end times, and if, that, if Jesus' resurrection is almost mixed up with his ascension and means he's gone up to heaven, and then the end times is he will, you know, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, uh, which uh, almost becomes an appendix. This is def- that was, that's Maltman's phrase. The return of Christ is an appendix um, to the gospel. And it gets hopelessly confused, the return of Christ, I won't go into this now, with immortality, the immortality of the soul and heaven. Um, and it gets tangled up in prediction studies uh, of the last days and timetables and 
millennialism and post-millennialism and so on. But all of this interest is almost a prurient predictive interest in, in predicting the future. Uh, and and it, it's, it's, I think, very, very just of Maltman to say it's an appendix. It's an appendix. And, the, and the critical point is that there is... Um, that leaves us in a no-man's land in the middle. You know, we're sort of waiting for the resurrection. We're forgiven by the cross. But what do we do here? I mean, well, we wait to join Jesus in an escape hatch. Now, in behind this worldview is the huge infection of platonic thinking on Christian thought, which, again, we've talked about a lot. And um, uh, I won't go into that now because that would take too much time. But uh, I, uh, So the phrases that Maltman used in his book about this no-man's land is that eschatology bore no relation to the doctrines of the cross and resurrection. So what we're saying is there's now a split between the future and the cross. There's no uh, connection and did not derive from these by any logical necessity. That's a bit of a mouthful, but it's really important. He's saying that eschatology or or the future did not have a very strong logical necessity between the cross and the resurrection. I mean, technically speaking, if you think about it, in this traditional model, Jesus does not have to come back to the earth. He could take us to Mars. There's no, there's no logical necessity that links um, his work on earth to the future. Could, the future could be somewhere else, including heaven. Yeah. Right, yeah? So, so that's why it's a dotted line between the end times and the cross and the resurrection. And that dotted line leaves us in a no-man's land. What do we do here? Um, and as the, the statement down the bottom, the quote from uh, Maltman says, relegating of these events to the, quote, last day robbed them of their directive, uplifting and critical significance. Now, those adjectives are important. He used other adjectives you might know, mobilising. In other words, this middle ground is where I will have direction, um, be uplifted and... and, and, and critique things. It's so it lost. It robbed them. It, it robbed uh, uh, the uh, uh, dying and rising of Jesus of their directive, uplifting and critical significance for all the days spent here. Mm-hmm. This side of the end in history. Mm-hmm. Okay, so his interest is actually not to relegate hope to the end, but to now, which we already made that point on the board. Does that make sense to people? This is a hugely important point. Hope is actually about now. It's not about the future, it's about now. So um, so let's now try, and that's how it got sidelined, that's the effects of it, let's try and, and, and begin to build uh, up a better, a better paradigm or worldview around hope. So I think hope very simply can be two things, a noun and a verb. The noun is the one I'm most important. Uh, I'm most interested in. So, in the New Testament, it's a noun, i.e., it's a territory. It, hope could be called Alaska. You know, if you thought of it as some place, that's that's a, that's a very very good way because it's it's not actually something in me. It's actually a topography I see and believe in. So he says it's a place we can contemplate. It's a place we can imagine. It's a place we can study. Um, it's a land. Hope is a land. Just, these are just a few passages. 
Colossians, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Uh, Ephesians 1, which I've already mentioned, may the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, I like saying it that way, give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And then finally in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So glory is a noun in those uh, statements. It's an inheritance. It's a possession. It's, it's a substance. Does that make sense? And I think the best metaphor is to think of it as a land. It's also used as a verb. By the way, it's the same word. There's only one word for hope in the New Testament that I could read when I, when I checked on this. So noun, verb, same word. So it's not like love that's got four words. It's just got the one word. Um, so it's, it's also called as a, something I do, I hope. Uh, so it's a function and an activity. Um, and it's something we can therefore decide to do, decide not to do, practice doing, do better. Um, you know, we, we are those who have hoped in Christ. So there, that's um, an opening point. Uh, let's now look at the territory of hope because that's what interests me most. And the next slide is probably the key one for the night, um, which is trying to redo that inadequate landscape. So the evangelical landscape that, as it were, begins with the story of the cross, the forgiveness of sins and the end times, that's an inadequate landscape. The territory of hope um, always begins before the creation of the world. So when Paul's in Ephesians, when Paul's in Colossians, he doesn't even start with the birth of the cosmos. By the way, I'm increasingly attracted to use the language, not of creation or beginning, but birth, because that's a more intimate phrase that the Godhead birthed the cosmos. And um, so, it, so that's where we begin in the birth of the cosmos in the mind and heart of God. That's exactly where Paul begins in Ephesians 1. And his prayer is that you would understand that. It's not some kind of uh, out-at-the-edge speculation that only a few Christians should get their heads around. Not according to Paul. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that's where he's starting all of his thinking. Um, and so our landscape has to begin in the intention of God in creating matter. You can see in the little diagram I've got there, the cloudy bubble, that's my diagram for the Trinity. <laughs> you can't draw God, but anyway, that's something. And the arrow coming out of it is the, the birth of creation. But I've got a dotted line because in, very importantly, there will always be a separation between God and creation. The cross is then positioned within that story. It's not a surprise event in that story. It actually continues the story of that creation. Um, I've missed the Old Testament, but very, very importantly, between the cross and the creation is the Old Testament and the promises of God in the Old Testament. And very, very importantly, and you can see in this diagram here, the resurrection, as you can see what I've tried to do in the diagram is looked at this expanding two arrows, 
think of that as the horizons of the cosmos growing, the created order. And I've put the resurrection of Jesus inside those two lines. That's really important schematically. The resurrection of Jesus was not an escape hatch out of the created order and back to heaven. Right? That's kind of, I think, mentally what we think. The absolute key to this is the resurrection of Jesus was to be the Lord of creation inside the created order. And his resurrection gave him the status to be the sovereign Lord of the created order. So that's really vital to this landscape of hope. And therefore, that makes Jesus the Lord of the new creation um, and, the, uh, and of the new created order. And the new Jerusalem, whatever form that will take, is a continuum from all of this. It's not an, even an end days. It's actually a continuum where the habitation of God will be seen as a fulfilment of the birth of the cosmos. And when Paul is going through that Mount Everest Himalayan landscape in Ephesians 1, and you're just, to be honest with you, I feel that I run out of oxygen to keep up with him. I mean, he was caught up into the third heaven. And um, he takes us through this breathtaking landscape. He... Um, he actually, uh, he says, um, I'm just trying to remember the exact phrase. He, in love, he, in, in, Christ, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the will and purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. I mean, it, there's just this repetitive thundering in Ephesians that nothing was an accident, that our salvation was an accident. Us being placed at the epicenter of God's love is not an accident. He works all things after the counsel of his own will, and we're in the epicenter of his will. So, so therefore, there's got to be this straight line between his beginning of the cosmos, the end of the cosmos, and the New Jerusalem, and the organizing feature of lordship is the dying and rising of Jesus in the middle of it. So that is the, th the territory of hope. The territory of hope is the contemplation of that sweep. Does that make sense? And Tony, therefore, yeah. I take it that it's actually Platonism that does the damage. Correct. And, and this is what Moulton says, that, that it, it was... Um, I haven't gone into that, but essentially what... Maltman says is that Platonism and what he calls the epiphany religions, when it pretty well, it, it, certainly having listened to Ian Proven, um, any attempt that human beings have made to get religious has not been able to accommodate this. It's, it's got into what's called transcendence. In other words, heaven's up there. We're down here. There's a big split. And um, heaven is perfectionism, and we've got to escape. Now, Ian Proven made the point there was no conception of God that broke out of that, including Plato, because whilst Plato, Plato became incredibly uh, influential in the Christian church and its grapple with Plato and the Greeks is a huge uh, topic which we won't get into, but Maltman talks about it a great deal. He sees it as an eventually corrupting influence that stopped this conception happening. Because if I actually think that 
the earth is messy, if I actually think it's kind of a mistake, if I actually think that... Let me just put it this way. So I just told you I've had a bad day today. I won't go into it. Now, my theology when I was a young Christian would have taught me to look for a sin I did that caused it or um, contributed to it. So it would be an invitation to search my heart and find out what I did wrong to give me a bad day. Does anyone here ever have bad days, by the way? <laughs> okay. Um, so, that, so, so, well, I, I think that's paranoid and not helpful. It's actually not true in this case. I mean, just bad stuff happens, right? It just does. Stuff doesn't work out. I apply for jobs, I don't get them. Um, or, you know, I get sick. I mean, bad stuff happens. And the whole platonic movement was towards perfectionism and relief from what Maltman causes calls, and it's a gorgeous phrase, the questionableness of the human predicament, the, the, questionable, the, the ups and downs of life. And perfectionism is an envy of a higher state. This model says, no, it's actually part of the mess of the narrative of creation and God's, we're in the created order. So the territory of hope invites me to view positively the ups and downs of life, positively change, positively creation. And ironically, so what this then does, by the way, with the ascension of Christ is that it is not seen as an escape hatch, but, all, but as a reservation of all hope in this world until the resurrection power of Christ totally takes over the cosmos. So the phrases about Christ um, laying up hope for us in heaven. Now, what that's meant is that people think, oh, well, that means we're going to heaven to get the hope, right? That, uh, that's the reading that we would that phrases like that often get, that therefore the, the destiny is in heaven, to join Christ in heaven. Uh, the single best critique of that is, is Tom Wright's, who said, well, no, it's laid up in heaven and it's going to be taken down on earth. And he actually uses, I think, a very appropriate image of champagne. Uh, he says, look, if I tell you we're going to have a great party at my house and I've got the champagne waiting in the fridge, I'm not suggesting we all climb into the fridge and join the champagne, right? I'm going to get the champagne out of the fridge into the party. And so, so like, heaven is a fridge, and resurrection life's the champagne Jesus got stored up for a great big feast he's going to have when he brings it down to earth. Does that make sense? And there is no more common metaphor for the return of Christ than a great banquet. As a matter of fact, the most epic, wondrous prediction of resurrection in my view, in the Old Testament, is not in Daniel, but in Isaiah um, 28 or 25, 25. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's, such a, it's, it's very appropriate to what we're saying. Um, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. This is on this mountain, which is Mount, Mount Sinai. On this mountain, now he moves out of metaphor, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up 
death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. So this incredible metaphor of the entire earth being wrapped in a funeral shroud of death and on this mountain he will destroy it forever. So, But the metaphor is, what's he going to do? He's going to have the best banquet with the finest of wines and the finest of meats. Isaiah 28 or 28? 25, sorry. So some of the critical areas on this territory of hope, which we, my, my aim tonight was merely to kind of stake out that territory of hope. I think what hope does, it changes the way we look at the whole of the created order. Um, we have a distinction between um, eternal and created orders. That is forever. Uh, it's a simple point, but certainly in my mind, has been incredibly important in getting my head straight. That to be created isn't to be bad and I will always be created. All through eternity, I will be part of the created order. I will not become part of the uncreated order. That's God. I won't go to the uncreated space. I am in creation. And there's nothing in Scripture that says it's bad or that I somehow or other will will move into some divine state where I'm no longer created. Very useful. Um, the very, very importantly, the point we won't make a lot of tonight any more than to mention it. Maltman stresses it a lot. The Old Testament and the Gospel does not ask the existential question, does God exist? It never asks that question. It doesn't answer that question. The question it asks is, is God faithful? And the declaration regularly is not God exists, but he is faithful. He is faithful to his promise. So what this revelation um, of the gospel in Abraham did was it framed all of life as a promise, which is a phenomenal pretext to hope. So promise is the pretext to hope. And the declaration that we have to friends and family and everyone is that life is framed by promise. It's, it's in people's psyche, as far as I can work out. We've got a sense, it's, you know, the whole sense of expectation that frames lives. So that actually, that's actually a remnant and flickering of the truth of God. And what the Old Testament and the prophets all said was, it's true. God meant us to be with him forever. Um, importantly, the dying and rising of Jesus begin the new creation, so it's already begun. And far from the end times being in the future, they're actually, insofar as there's an inauguration of the end times, the Bible is very clear it began with the resurrection of Christ. When Paul says, we are they upon whom the ends of the world have come, he didn't mean the future, he meant it happened when Jesus rose from the dead. The beginning of the end, the new kingdom has been inaugurated. Um, And the resurrection is the framing of the DNA of the new creation. So when Creation will be able to house glory. And the end of all things, the telos, the culmination uh, of the new order, is the city of God, this great metaphor, um, where, i.e., the whole of the created order becomes the house of God. And the enormous... This, what this does with the resurrection is it moves it right into the core of the operating engine of redemption. Because what the cross is confronting is not the forgiveness of sins, 
but the corrupt is the shroud covering the whole of creation. It's the whole corruptibility system that has to be rebuilt, re-engineered. How on earth can creation house glory? And that's what the Godhead did in the three days with Christ. Reframed matter, reframed gravity, reframed all the laws that govern creation such that it can now house God. Pretty exciting, isn't it? So, um, that's the high point. We'll just finish off with a couple of, uh, I think, great statements by um, Mr Maltman. And this is one, that creative action springing from faith is impossible without new thinking and planning that springs from hope. So, that, so hope, thinking like this, uh, frames new thinking, new planning, um, and uh, makes wise knowledge possible. This is a mouthful uh, to read at 10 to 9 on Friday night, but I suppose it's up there. I'll, I'll read it out. <laughs> um, for our knowledge and comprehension of reality, hope means at least this. This is what hope means as to how we look at re reality. That in the medium of hope, our theological concepts... They're not judgments which are nailing reality down, the answers to everything, as to what it is, but they're anticipations which show reality its future possibilities. That is really powerful. They show reality its future possibilities. That's the declaration that reality is actually defined by a glorious future. Theological concepts do not give a fixed form to reality. They are expanded by hope and anticipate future being. They illuminate reality by displaying its future. That's a phenomenal phrase. They illuminate reality by displaying its future. What that means, if you were to translate that into any particular broken situation, is the reality of that broken situation is not now. It's actually in its future, its possibilities, which God has framed by promise. I mean, that's a big concept to get our head around, but if I take you know, a bad day like today, rather than being invited to navel gaze about what I did to contribute to it, I actually am invited to frame that future, frame that present reality by the future possibility of the city of God, which has been guaranteed by God's promise. Which is the resurrection, right? Well, the resurrection is... It's created the new order, and the new order will be complete in the future. I'm in the middle of that, but, yes. but it's actually it's actually saying that really I should be able to diagnose any situation through the lens of hope and train my mind to do it. Um, Can I ask a question? Yes. Is Romans twelve one? Yes, the transform. What God's up to when your mind is renewed, the yeah. new paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Adam. Um, so I'm thinking eschatology is the frame, mm. and and that resurrection's the promise because it's already it's a happened. So we don't need to hope for it in the future. He's already reordered the cosmos at that point, and we're on a new tra trajectory. Correct. Leaving the created order. Yeah. Re re resurrection. There's a guarantee there. Yeah. Re resurrection has secured happened. has secured that hope. Resurrection secured that hope. That yeah. was my question. 
Yeah, because prior to the resurrection, the hope was still, how on earth will this happen? How will this become real? It's now absolutely obvious. Paul makes this very plain that we understand these things. He says, in all wisdom and in all insight, God made known to us the mystery of his will. How in the fullness of times he will gather together all things in one in Christ. So yes, that's correct. So if you're thinking about this, you diagnose every situation by its possibilities for change. Now, Maltman has got a really nice part about this in this book where he says, what does this do for my relationship with the utopian movements on the earth that don't have Christ at their centre? And I think his answer is sweet, and I agree with it. It says, in a way I can critique them for their inadequacy, but I can support them for the direction they're going on and almost say they're not going far enough. And he then has a sideswipe at a lot of conservative Christianity that the best it can do is to criticise everything and says the faith has always never had a... Faith has never got on very well with cynicism. It's much closer to... Hope is much closer to utopian. So I think anyone who's trying to transform a situation, we should say, go for it. My faith tells me you're absolutely on track. And that is why I have enormous respect for change agents. I don't care... It's a second question as to where they are in their individual walk with God. But I see courage, I see optimism, I see bravery. People who want to you know, change anything for the better. It's hard work. And of course, in the reality of life, it doesn't all work out. If you're trying to help somebody who's suffering from depression or drugs, it may fail. If you're trying to change an organisation, it, it'll never change it as much as you want to. So in the end, despondency sets in because and I've been through so many cycles of this in my life because I'm a change agent and I get knocked over and tripped up and I say, was it stupid of me to, to try? What the New Jerusalem says, no, it's not. No, you're actually, hope says there's a future reality that's secured and, and keep going. So we of all people should be change agents. It's a great, I think, um, travesty that Christianity is so associated with conservatism rather than reform and challenge. Tony, have you read the, his, his new one? No, The Ethics, the Ethics of Hope. Ethics of Hope. It, go, it goes through in great detail exactly that. What oh, cool. Like to be. He wrote it at, what, 86, I think, five years ago, but about all sorts of aspects of society. Oh, that's wonderful. And, and fleshes out his thinking on what exactly being a change agent looks like. That's wonderful. Well... I won't tell the full story, but we're going to be looking forward because you've read much more Maltman than I am. It's, it's my not-so-dark secret that I just read about six pages of books and talk about them as I've read the lot. But um, uh, So we're really looking forward to that. But you, of course, know that Maltman was uh, Miroslav's teacher. Um, so you've heard a lot of Maltman in Miroslav, and not just teacher, but very close friend and mentor. And actually, when I was in America with, um, with Miroslav, setting, setting him up before he came here. He'd just in, invited uh, Jürgen Moltmann to America, who he travelled there on his own at that age, 86, and everyone was amazed how he'd kind of travelled across the world and he was, what are you all worried about? And, um, but, you know, yeah, w w wonderful. <laughs> and um, that, I think uh, the Miroslav and he are both the same, obviously, very poetic in the way they express themselves and very much... But 
you can so, so you can see a lot of uh, Jürgen Moltmann's influence in the language of gift. The world's a gift from, and what's the good life uh, that uh, Miroslav emphasised. So um, uh, almost there. Um, this is a great phrase that I think covers hope, and it's tantum cognoscitur quantum diligitur. Diligitur. Sorry, my Latin pronunciation's not good. It's St. Augustine. We've all got a love-hate relationship with St. Augustine. It's probably 70% love, 30% hate, but it's a fantastic thing because what it means is you can only understand what you love. You can only truly understand what you love. So what hope says is nobody, none of us will ever love the created order anything like the father loves the created order. He adores the sea. He adores the wind. He adores the flowers. He adores us. He can't do better. We're his Sistine Chapel. And anyway, you can't paint the Sistine Chapel without love. I mean, you, yes, the skill, the skill behind every, any great work of art, but what this great statement by St Augustine says, you've got to love it. So hope is the territory of love, which is why it's so positive. So um, what this lets us do, and this is our last slide, is it positions us to be active agents. And hope gives me a framework to act positively in the world. Um, and... It lets me in the middle, not just trip along in life as this diagram shows, just reacting and going through the motions, but having an upward trajectory of reform, ambition, help and transformation within whatever my sandpit is. And, and I want to stress this, I'm not talking here about God is not interested in volume. It doesn't matter whether I'm the president of America whether I run a country or whether I have a, I'm, I'm ministering to one friend. He's, scale doesn't interest him. What interests him is our ambition for, to see the possibilities for hope in any situation, which, is, which will be a challenge uh, just as much on a one-on-one -on -one situation very often as it would be as if I was running a country. But we, we should be the agents for transformation in the world and hope gives us the framework We'll finish with this statement um, of Abraham. I think there are two great figures, actually, that we could talk about in the world of hope, and they are Abraham and Moses. Um, and I think I've been thinking next time to do the talk on actually applying this to the life of Moses. Um, you've heard, I think, me talk before about Moses, the greatest social innovator in human history. As, as, I, as I learn more, I only get more confident about that. In other words... Somebody who acted politically, socially, created a country, created an entire set of legislation, judiciary, um, agricultural system, um, system of governance. It's all there. It's just a massive creation. So out of Egypt, um, it's an astonishing innovation, um, all built around the faith in Yahweh, uh, there's almost nobody we could look at more who actually transformed situations in his own day like Moses did. But this particular uh, quote from Hebrews is what we're going to fi finish on. By faith, Abraham, 
I used to misread this completely until the other day when I read it. Um, By faith, Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, for he was looking to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, I used to read that carelessly as if it was Abraham was living in Israel in tents because he was looking for heaven. Right? He's a pilgrim and stranger on the earth, right? So he's moving through, and what's he looking for? What's he expecting? He's expecting heaven, uh, that is the city, with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's what I'd read it as. It's actually not correct. You've just got to read it. He was called to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance. That's the land of Israel. His inheritance was the land of Israel, not heaven. and And he obeyed, he went, and he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. So he was living in his inheritance without yet inheriting it. His inheritance was the land, not heaven. And he was um, living there like a foreigner and a stranger because he hadn't yet come into the ownership and possession of it. And what gave him hope was his hope that in, in the city of God, that God would somehow or other fulfill his promise to him. So that is a phenomenal analogy to us. You know, we are living in a land. Now, you've just got to view, go back to where I, I began that hope is a, is a topography. The topography goes the land of Israel, which is a metonymy representative of the earth, of the entire earth. And the entire earth which is in term a metonymy of the city of God. They're not different places. They're the same place going through transitions. Does that make sense? So we are living in our inheritance here now, this earth. Much as he was living in the earth, he, he was in a tent. He was going to run it one day and own it one day. His descendants did, but he didn't. So we're living on this earth here. This is the inheritance. This earth is the inheritance. And we're living in tents because... In other words, we haven't yet got all the power to possess and everything. Yeah. But what, what keeps us going? Well, we're, we're God, who's building a city, and the city is going to be this earth, transfigured, transformed by the power of resurrection. So it's not as if we're living on the earth looking to go to heaven and leave this earth. This is the inheritance. But it's not yet received because it hasn't been transformed into its new shape. Does that... I mean, that's clearly what he's saying. They're just the obvious hadn't hit me. So we, we can be like exactly like Abraham, and we can view this is our inheritance, not somewhere else. Right here, it's now. The resurrection has set it all up. The new Jerusalem has promised. The designer and builder of that city is God, who will animate, transform all of creation by the 
the, by, the, by his glory and his resurrection power. Well, um, the question is, um, how do we deal with that in Australia where we are essentially, we've grabbed the land from the Indigenous people? So that, that's, that's, that's a bigger question than I can answer tonight. I guess it's a, it's a subset of the broad question of, so how do we live with brokenness? Um, how, how, how does that story of enormous kind of hope and optimism um, live with the reality of all sorts of brokenness and, and, and whatever. And the answer is in the right in the middle of the diagram, which is really, really interesting, which is the dying and rising of Christ become a code not just for redemption, but actually for the cycle of suffering, questionableness, weakness and strength. And that's a a mystery to which, as a code, Paul went to decipher any situation. The, 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 the joint synergy and operating model between the dying and the rising of Jesus. So within this hope territory, the dying and rising of Jesus becomes much more than a redemptive mechanism to solve a problem. It's actually at the core of who God is and his character. The great mystery. So we know God is humble as an example. Uh, we know God submitted himself to bad days, as an example. So, um, as Paul often did, he interpreted his own life through the dying and rising of Jesus. So, much to explore in that, but if you want to have... I'll finish on a practical note. I am so offended. I am so offended by this phrase of Judeo-Christian values, which kind of the right-wing politicians freely use, like Stephen Bannon, who I, you know, is a person I have, I fear. I am so angry about it because not one of the people I've heard talk about it strike me as a born-again Christian. They don't strike me as anyone who's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. They're just using a very loosely used phrase of Judeo-Christian values. The shock jocks use it. Judeo-Christian values are getting eroded. Right here? So I'm angry because I think they're stealing the name of Christ for their own political ends. There is a very simple way to change that, to critique it um, in your own mind, to say, does this person speak the truth? What would I say in this situation? And it's simply this. Take any particular sentence they say, such as Steve Bannon, to paraphrase him, Judeo-Christian values are being threatened by hostile forces in the world today and we need to protect them, quite unquote. Because we all know that Judeo-Christian values has been used for white supremacists, as an example. So all you do is just follow this diagram and you take the phrase Judeo-Christian values out and throw it away because it's not biblical and replace it with the phrase the dying and rising of Jesus. See if it makes sense. See if Steve Bannon's statement, the dying and rising of Jesus is being threatened today all around the world by hostile forces. And we need to go to war to protect the dying and rising of Jesus. If he said that, I'd listen to him at least. 
Yeah. But straight away I'm getting illogical consistencies because this guy was crucified. He lost the battle. He didn't actually fight to protect himself. He was massacred. So how is it that we go to war to protect the dying of Jesus? Do you see what I mean? Because you just plop into the middle of that phrase, God's great uh, mechanism for hope, and then I'm, I'm happy then to... I'm no longer angry, I'm happy to have a debate. Because that, that phrase, dying and rising of Jesus, is, is uh, very, very confronting for us all, but it's who God is. Right here. Well, I trust that that opened a little bit of a door, and um, I certainly feel inadequate to to you know walk through it. But we'll we'll go on a bit of a journey of it uh, through the year. Thanks. Thanks.